to another haunting horror month episode of the countless corpses podcast holding the sad yeah. signal and happy halloween yes <laughs> i am your host macabre michael nunley and with me as always is my friend and co-host the dark lord david nemesis howard we are two longtime horror fans and horror writers here to give out evil trivia pie pieces talk about and analyze horror movies and let's not forget our favorite part of the episode and that is counting the corpses if you would like to check out our horror work i have a viking horror comic called Seder number one from revelation comics that you can find on wickedpublishing.net uh, forward slash revelation dash comics. Uh, Nem here has an occult mystery horror novel called uh, The Long Game that is available on asapimagination.com. Now, today is special. Not only is this the one year anniversary episode of the Countless Corpses podcast, there is just something about doing a horror podcast episode in October that is really awesome. I've been doing the 61 Days of Halloween thing since September 1st, and man, I have had a blast. Horror movies are great all year round, but they are just so much cooler this time of year. Uh, today, though, we're covering Annabelle Creation from 2017 first, and then Annabelle Comes Home from 2019. Annabelle Creation is a prequel to 2014's Annabelle and the fourth film in the Conjuring universe. I have to say that out of the three Annabelle movies, Annabelle Creation is by far the scariest. At least it was for me. Uh, there are a couple of spots that still get me, but, but what about you, Nim? Uh, which of the Annabelle trilogy do you think is the scariest? Yeah, man. I, I think I got to go with you on Annabelle Creation being the scariest of the three movies. But first of all, happy Halloween, everybody. Happy yeah. season. And here you can see me in my natural form. I have been, come out for just for Halloween for you in these robes. Maybe I'll keep them. Maybe I won't. But you have seen the Dark Lord now as he approaches and comes to the Countless Corpses podcast. So there you go. So, uh, but I yeah. Think, I, think, I think we need a stab signal for that. Yeah, baby. I've seen the All Dark right. Lord in his true form. <laughs> 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 but uh, awesome, yeah. I, but like I said, I gotta go with you on Annabelle Creation being the scariest of the three movies. Um, there's just something about the setup of that movie, the, the involvement of kids, the possession angle, all of that stuff. That it just gets a Dark Lord's heart pumping. You know, it, it makes yeah. me feel bad about myself in a good way. So uh, anyway, welcome to the Witching Hour version of Countless Corpses. All uh, I am fully recovered from my bout with Pennywise and Annabelle, and I am raring to go. So we are putting an exclamation point on this franchise with this Halloween episode, and I couldn't be happier to do a podcast and say goodbye to Evil Dolls, probably not forever, but at least for the moment. So there's a whole lot more to say about these two babies, but I'll wait till we get into the meat and potato portions of the broadcast, and I'm going to send it back over to you. I, I, I have to make a suggestion, my dark friend. You are mighty and a powerful Dark Lord, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, but maybe, just maybe, stick to fighting, I don't know, one demon at a time from now on. I think that maybe fighting Annabelle and Pennywise might have been too ambitious, especially considering Annabelle comes with Malthus to fight too. Even the Dark Lord nemesis has his limit, and I think that limit is one demon at a time. I have no limits. I have no boundaries. I am... Inevitable. 
sorry. I had to get a little bit of megalomania uh, out of there for a moment. So uh, please do go on. Uh, oof, I've been holding that in for a moment. So I'm going to collect myself. Keep going. So. We're going to need Boja the Blessed over here for some healing stat. <laughs> Seriously, though. Um, I am really looking forward to diving into these last two films of the Annabelle trilogy with you. As you said, there is a lot to unpack with these two films. And as usual, I have a few of my wacky theories for us to go over as well. Uh, but before we get into all of that, let's dive into the pre-production on Annabelle creation, Nim. Absolutely. Sure thing. Let's do that. So, um... Where do we start? Let's start right at the beginning. So following up on the success of Annabelle, uh, the studio confirmed in October of 2015 that Annabelle sequel was in development and John Leonati was moving on from Annabelle to direct the Sleepy Hollow TV series. And it was announced that David Sandberg, who would later go on to direct Shazam, by the way, would replace him as director. Uh, Sandberg has described himself as a fan of the franchise, especially the first one, uh, since they were more of a classic old-school horror movie in many ways. Uh, kudos to him for saying that. So yeah. during post-production on Lights Out, James Wan and a New Line approached Sandberg to offer him the helm of Annabelle creation. Wan and New Line were impressed with the early cuts of Lights Out and thought that Sandberg was the man to move this franchise forward. Of course, Wan was already familiar with Sandberg due to the fact that Lights Out was being produced by Wan's Atomic Monster production company. And Wan is fantastic. We've sung his praises many times before. Yeah. Uh, initially, Sandberg was not that interested in the project as he didn't want to sign on to another formulaic horror sequel. And, you know, I get where he's coming from. Although formulaic horror sequels can be fun as well. So mm -hmm, we've already mm -hmm. established that. But uh, Wan asked Sandberg to read the script. And after reading it, he realized how much this movie differed from the first film. And with that, Sandberg signed on. Sandberg would state that he was attracted to the movie as a standalone film and the creative freedom that came with that. Uh, I can say that I understand all of that quite a bit. I mean, when you sign up to do a sequel to Friday the 13th or Halloween, uh, there's only so much freedom you get. You know that there are certain elements that'll have to be part of the film, no matter which direction you go. I mean, Halloween, there's going to be Michael Myers and he's going to be in a mask, you know. Uh, Jason is going to be wearing a hockey mask, more than likely. You know, it's going to happen. But um, Sandberg also loved that this film was a period piece set in, shall we say, a unique location. But I'm sure we're going to get to that. Uh, the writer of 2014's Annabelle, Gary Dauberman, returned to write the script. And both Peter Safran and James Wan were at the helm as producers once again. So with that, over to you, Mr. McCobb. Take it away. You know, I, I have to agree with you about how nice it would be to have that kind of freedom, you know, artistically speaking, within not just a trilogy, but a trilogy within an overall franchise that was being developed. Uh, that could very easily be doubly binding as a director. Uh, and like you were saying in so many words, this chance for artistic freedom, where there are a few basic elements that need to be worked in, but a whole lot of room for creativity would not have happened in a slasher franchise, I don't think. I think that Annabelle creation was a rare opportunity, and Sandberg saw that when Juan showed him the script, and he just jumped on that shit. Yeah, you know... You look at what he gets to do. He gets to be part of a shared universe, but he still gets to explore the story his way and in the direction that he wanted to go. I mean, that is a rare, rare thing uh, in any medium. 
you know so it's almost as rare as seeing as an example me cuddle up to an evil doll but uh we're not going to go back there so over to you <laughs> and we're talking rare when it comes to cuddling up to evil dolls and the dark lord that's Trust like um that's like that's like finding bigfoot fucking a unicorn while an alien is watching just just to throw out a story for all of you real quick uh, <laughs> last night dixon the cat knocked over a certain evil doll that resides in my bedroom while i was sleeping and that doll fell over and was looking at me as i woke up to see what the thud was so yes <laughs> Dark Lord Dam was not happy. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just be careful on those rare occasions, then. Um, those splinters are not fun. <laughs> but on a writing note, um, I really like that they got Gary Dauberman to come back as a writer on this one. Uh, that was the right move. Between Dauberman's writing and J.R. Leonetti's uh, directing, Annabelle 2014 was pretty good and scary the first couple of times you watched it. But while I like Leonetti's directing, I think that same style on Annabelle creation might not have worked so well. I really think that the different directorial voices between the two films and their different settings make each of the stories work better. Uh, that's why I think it was a great idea to bring on David F. Sandberg to direct. Uh, from what you described there, Nim, he was a solid choice and I like his vision for the movie I mean we've already talked about creation being the best in the trilogy so there it is there uh, but speaking of Sandberg I believe you had some more to say about his inspirations for Annabelle creation am I right Nim? Um, point of inspiration? Oh sorry wrong podcast yeah. sorry. <laughs> I'm going to go uh, ahead and take that anyway <laughs> No problem uh, we do have a game coming up on Sunday with the Fellowship of the T20, so store those things up because I've had several weeks to prepare evil stuff for all of you. And you know, oh I'm shit, <laughs> oh man, and you know he's been talking to his daughters, folks. <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, so Samber, like we said, is a fan of the genre, and uh, he drew references from an obscure psychological horror film from 1963, The Haunting. Um, the Haunting presents an atmospheric, moody look that is enhanced by the use of CinemaScope. And Sandberg referenced this movie when coming up with the look for Annabelle Creation. And I love that. I absolutely love the people that look backwards for inspiration. You know, mm. uh, it's kind of what we do on another show that I'm a part of. But um, I will let you find that on your own. But uh, Sandberg also knew what movie the score should reference. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Um, that's pretty cool that he went back to The Shining as well. You know, a lot of people take some problems with Kubrick, but you can't put anything past the look, feel, and sound of that movie. So we're going to get into that, I'm sure. So, but um, Sandberg also drew inspiration from the progenitor of the whole series, the whole shared universe, The Conjuring, borrowing its old school feel. And I absolutely love that because um, it's kind of the thing that some shared universes don't do. Eventually start doing their own thing and forget to keep those little pieces that make it unique and tie it all together. So kudos to them. Back to you, Mike. You know, I'll, I'll, I, I just got to say, uh, I, think, I think that one of the things that really adds to the old school feel, when they're talking about the old school feel of The Conjuring, I think what they're talking about is not necessarily the content, but in a in a big way, they're talking about how the movie is shot, and I and I think I think I think that that we're, we're actually going to get into that a little bit now. Um, yeah. 
there, there were several wide open shots in the film. Um, speaking of CinemaScope, uh, what's more is that Sandberg used the wide open shots in Annabelle Creation just like Kubrick used those same kind of wide open shots in the opening of The Shining and for the same reason, to stress the isolated nature of the environment that we were entering. That isolation is a key part of the uh, fear in the film, uh, both for us and for the characters. So I think he took more than just the score concept from The Shining, as both Annabelle Creation and The Shining drew on isolation. Uh, but that is not to say that the score was not involved. The score for Annabelle Creation was great, and, and now that you have mentioned it, I can hear a similar spirit in the music. Also, uh, we will get into uh, another thing that Annabelle Creation shares with The Shining uh, when we get into cinematography in just a minute. Very cool, very cool. And I gotta say, to his credit, Sandberg chose the relative path of light, which is a good thing in this case, um, and made it known that he would build tension and suspense to achieve his vision rather than going for the crack cocaine of horror, uh, jump scares. And I think we can all agree that jump scares are the crack cocaine of horror. So, <laughs> hell yeah. It, it seemed like an appropriate moment for a jump scare stab signal, and I just couldn't resist. I am macabre, Mike, and I need to see blood and jump scares, the crack cocaine of horror. I have been blood and jump scare free for less than a minute now. I'm, I don't I don't suppose there's like a minute chip or something, is there? Uh, uh, I'll, I'll see myself out. <laughs> uh, just, whatever you do, just don't leave me alone in here with the doll, just in case. Just, uh. All right, man, all right. I, I, won't, I won't go. <laughs> Calm down. Ooh. I don't know what came over me. I let my fear take over me. I will not live in fear. So there it is. I'm fine. That's so. right. <sighs> so anyway, it is a previous film, Lights Out. Uh, Samberg meticulously crafted each scene through storyboarding and blocking beforehand. However, on this film, Samberg took a different note, a more holistic approach, which is a, sh a very fancy way of saying he pulled it right out of his ass. So, uh, eschewing storyboarding and blocking, Sandberg relied on inspiration from set and moment. Uh, his mantra on the film, we'll figure it out on set together, we'll make it work. Now, I have to say that uh, this is pretty ballsy. And in my opinion, it worked quite well, but wow. I mean, usually a director who flies by the seat of their pants delivers a steaming plate of demon dung. And if you've ever seen a steaming plate of demon dung, it's not pretty, folks. So uh, I know of what I speak. So, but in this case, uh, it worked. And thank goodness or vileness for that. So whew, with that out of the way, uh, I will move on to a man who may or may not like Stephen Clayton, uh, Stephen Dung. Over to you, Mike. So. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think having a little steaming pile of demon dung really adds to the metal feel of a cave. You know what I mean? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I gotta, I gotta agree that that is 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 extremely ballsy, and I, I honestly would love to have been there when he told James Wan that he was just gonna wing it on Annabelle Creation. I mean, according to what you said, he was hired because of his work on Lights Out, and that was, in your words, meticulously crafted, and each scene was storyboarded. So I'm picturing being very impressed with Sandberg's vision as a director, as, as as an executive producer, liking his detailed planning of everything because that saves time and, more importantly, money. 
then getting an entirely different approach from him on the film that you hire him for. What do you suppose Juan thought of that? I mean, it obviously worked out, but that was a huge risk on Juan's part, whose production company was making the film, and on Sandberg's part. That is doing the exact opposite of why I would have hired Sandberg if I was New Line and James Wan. Any thoughts on that, Nim? Uh, yeah, uh, big old brass cojones on him for doing it. And I'm glad that it worked out for him. But uh, I will say, if it was my own money, um, yeah, I'd be fine doing whatever the hell I wanted But because it's my own money. But it's a whole other thing when you're fucking around with someone else's cash. And especially the amount we're talking about here. I don't know the exact ex amount that, that it took to film Annabelle Creation, but it was millions of dollars, you know? So... Um, I think, though, that this is what separates the successful uh, from the pack sometimes. Sometimes you just got to go fuck it and go for it. I mean, unfortunately, 90% of the time you stomp on your own dick when you do that. Uh, but as they say, no guts, no glory. So there it is. <laughs> so. Oh, man. Uh, um, I get a real strong visual when you say things like stomp on your dick. <laughs> <laughs> it's a damn good thing that it worked out. You know, stepping on your dick is not fun, despite the bragging rights that it comes with. Absolutely. Seriously, though, going in a different direction than you were hired for can get you the wrong kind of reputation in Hollywood. I can't tell you how many times I've heard filmmakers talk about sticking with a basic group of people in making films because of the ease of working together with them and the rapport that they build. I personally would rather be in that group where I have a steady work than to go off the trail to make a name for myself. But, I mean, that that's just me. I, I like earning money rather than a name, I guess. <laughs> but in order to keep up the old school feel of the first two Conjuring films and to make Annabelle Creation feel more like a period piece, director Peter Sandberg used a couple of old school tricks. Things like Steadicam, which is uh, a mounting for a movie camera that keeps it steady while being handheld or, or moving on things like a dolly track. And speaking of a dolly tracks, uh, Sandberg used tracking shots in the film. I'll admit that I needed to look into the term tracking shots and see what they were. So for those of you out there that didn't know what that meant like me, here you go. Now with the name tracking in the title, you might think that this simply means putting the camera on a dolly track. And traditionally speaking, you would be correct to an extent. Uh, there are other methods used by modern filmmakers like stabilized steadicam mounts uh, like Sandberg used in Annabelle Creation. Uh, they put them on motorized vehicles and even drones rather than on a track. Uh, the term tracking shots actually refers to the camera work. Uh, a tracking shot is when a camera is actually moving left or right, which is called a truck shot, or forward and backward, which is called a dolly shot, through the scene rather than just panning across it. In fact, as a quick side note, panning and tilting uh, on their own are not considered tracking shots because they are done with the camera in a fixed position. But... Panning and tilting can be used in a tracking shot. Tracking shots often follow one or more moving subjects, like when the girls and Sister Charlotte were walking through the Mullins house when they first got there. That was a combination of dolly and trucking shots. The best tracking shots often require complex choreography and precise camera work for the camera operators, and again, I think that scene is a perfect example of this. 
Tracking shots often consist of long takes without jumps or cuts to different angles. The purpose of tracking shots, as you see in that scene with the girls and Sister Charlotte going through the Mullins house, is to immerse the audience in the film by allowing them to traverse through the set in real time just like the characters. This does a lot to suck the audience into the film by helping them stay engaged in the film's narrative and emotional journey because they feel like they are in the world the characters are in. We mentioned the shining influence on Annabelle creation and I understand that you have an example of tracking shots from that movie am I right Nim? Oh yeah heck yeah so and uh, I want to thank you for picking out a movie with another one of my phobias in it The Shining you know so thank you for that um, but yeah so that's what I'm here for man <laughs> uh, in this movie Cuba uses a long and rather eerie tracking shot as we follow Danny riding his tricycle around the Overlook Hotel um the sound of the wheels changes as he goes from carpet to hardwood floor and back to carpet. And the, this paints a discordant picture as we watch him pedaling around the hallways like a boy possessed. I mean, that kid uh, looks like he's got a serious mission or he's doing something, you know, that he's concentrating really difficult hard on. But I have to say that particular part really reminded me of a similar shot of Damien uh, on a movie we covered earlier, which was The Omen you know, when he oh, ran yeah. into his mother. So, um, but with each turn, the suspense builds until Danny stops and comes face to face with the dead twin girls murdered by their father, Charles <laughs> Grady. I mean, it is great camera work and it is a genuinely spooky scene. So uh, yeah, we're going to think about that one forever and ever and ever. So, <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. Well done. That is a great example of tracking shots and how they can be used not just to immerse the viewer like I was talking about, but also to build suspense. You know, like we, like you were talking about when when uh, when he, he, he rides right up and turns into that hallway and the girls are standing there. It feels like we just turned that hallway. You know what I mean? And and suddenly the, the, with all that suspense building, we're standing there in front of that girl that, that I mean. Wow, that that was just—it was a powerful scene, and I have to give uh, Kubrick uh, props there. And I actually have a new appreciation for that type of camera work and what goes into it. Uh, uh, but let's move on to the subject matter of demons and/or ghosts. Uh, strangely enough, director Peter Sandberg is not a believer. In his words, I haven't experienced anything in life that would lead me to believe they exist. But not everyone on set was free from fear and didn't believe. Actress Talitha uh, Bateman, who played Janice, uh, Lulu Wilson, who played Linda and Janice's best friend, and Samara Lee, who played Annabelle Mullins, had, had all seen The Exorcist. And Samara was actually named after Samara Morgan from The Ring. So working on a horror movie movie was not scary for them and almost nothing was too disturbing they did not feel tension or fear throughout the production however uh all three young actresses and stephanie stigman who played sister charlotte were all a little bit freaked out or, or unsettled might be a better word about being around the annabelle doll uh, Stephanie Stigman uh, apparently heard that a priest had blessed the set of The Conjuring 2 and requested that the same ritual be performed on the set of Annabelle Creation. So maybe she was just a bit more scared of Annabelle than even the three young actresses were. I assume that the rite was done by Father Robert as he was the expert exorcist uh, who worked as a consultant on the film. Uh, I know that you are pretty knowledgeable about these things from a Catholic perspective, Nim, and that is the POV they are going for in the film. So I have to 
ask, how do you think they did? Yeah, you know, um, I have to say, I think that the movie really felt incredibly authentic. Now, this movie is set, I believe it's the 50s, um, you know, but uh, it did feel authentic for the time. And although my younger years in the Catholic Church were in the 70s, it still held on to that previous generation sensibility of way of doing things right down to the school bus uh complete with none that the girls were brought to the home in and you know and we had a similar thing where we got taken around the school bus and uh and then i also took i took my own turns riding in the school bus you know so there was that um there's just also um how do i put this I don't want to, to, to offend anyone else. Well, the hell with that. I'll offend them. Uh, there's this <laughs> sense of authoritarian obligation, uh, especially in those first scenes, that just feels right, you know, for being Catholic. I mean, more importantly, I think they get the emotions right. Catholics love nothing more than guilt and obligation. I mean, hell, we have days in the year that are called days of obligation, and you are made to feel guilty if you don't fulfill your obligation and go to church on the days of obligation. So um, you can see and feel that in all of them. And I think that Malthus exploits it, quite frankly. I mean, as for the doll itself, yeah. I mean, you know how I feel about that accursed thing. I don't feel guilty about it, but I feel <laughs> obligated to beat the holy ever-loving shit out of that doll. So there it is. <laughs> I, I, I just have to comment uh, on this. You, 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 you know your Bible, you, you, you'll get this. You, you talked about uh, the obligation and feeling guilty right as a rooster crowed. <laughs> if, it crows, if it crows three times, uh, I need to re-examine my life. That's all. <laughs> you know, though, but for a guy that got roughed up pretty good recently, maybe you should heal up a bit uh, before getting into another fight with the Malthus infused doll. <laughs> yeah. You know. You're probably right, but uh, I dig pain, if you uh, know what I'm talking about. In fact, I love it, so. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> you know, I may have a phone number for you. It's 867-5309. Ask for Jenny. Oh, sir, take yourself an evil piece for that 80s uh, music reference there, so. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> All right, an evil piece for the 8675309. Hell yeah. Nice. Thank you, sir. Jenny, <laughs> <laughs> um, you got your number, so. That's right. That's right. Uh, but speaking of the Annabelle doll, uh, you'll notice that she looks a bit different in Annabelle creation. Uh, that was for a couple of reasons. The first reason being that we're seeing the doll right after she was created and still brand new and shiny. The other reason is that Sandberg wanted Annabelle to look like a doll that a young girl might actually want. Um, as we see in the beginning of the film, uh, there was a store owner that had people coming into his shop every day asking about Rich Mullins' dolls. So they were clearly pretty popular. As Nim pointed out last episode, why the hell would anyone give a doll that looked like Annabelle to their daughter? <laughs> they wouldn't! <laughs> Annabelle with her discolored skin and her messed up teeth and, and, and aging looking, looks scary as hell. I mean, however, uh, she's looking all shiny and new in this film because her features were softened. The cheeks were more filled out and the overbite was fixed. Uh, since they seem to address the very thing you brought up last episode about Annabelle looking so scary... Uh, uh, what do you think about those changes, Nim? Uh, real quick, I gotta get off the rail here. When you said shiny and new, 
the first thing that popped into my mind was pretty damn scary. It's like, love, it's shiny and new. Come aboard, we're expecting you. All right. Uh, so let's not hop on the love boat because that's a whole other podcast. So, uh, but yeah, I I think that it makes perfect sense for the doll to look shiny and new in this film. I mean, it it hasn't yet been corrupted, infected by the demonic, as it were, right? So um, it really puts a fine point on the fact that there is something seriously fucking wrong with that doll once we get to it in Annabelle. I mean, and it, like you said, it begs the question, does everyone see the doll looking dirty like that? Or are we, the film audience, getting an inner look into the soul of the doll, for lack of a better word? And either way, it still begs another question of, what the hell was wrong with the mom who brought that for her daughter? Why do you hate your daughter, woman? Why are you buying that doll? Because if you could see that doll like that, that's pretty fucked up, man. That's fucked up. And this is Dark Lord Bim saying that. That's fucked up. So it it is. That is <laughs> fucked up. I mean, that's like here. I love you. Have a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I do like the idea of Annabelle's appearance being affected by Malthus' connection to her a lot. I do also wonder why no one says anything about the look of the doll. That part has never really made sense to me. I suppose your theory about seeing something the characters are not is as good as anything I've got. Uh, but I understand that you had something uh, on the post-production side of the film dimension. Am I right, Nim? So, uh, yeah, sure do. I, I do have something on that. So something to note here now as we transition into post-production. Uh, a subplot of the film had Sister Charlotte confessing to Esther Mullins that she had once given birth to a son. Uh, she had given him up for adoption, but later found out that the boy had drowned at the age of seven when he got trapped beneath the ice of a frozen lake. Later, Charlotte hears strange noises while she's in bed, and when she holds a light under the bed, she sees a shadow on the wall of the boy desperately clawing at the ice above him. The scenes were filmed, but ultimately deemed unnecessary for the film. Now, I have to say, um, you know how I was mentioning guilt and obligation as powerful forces in Catholic life? Uh, and that I thought Maltus used this against all of them because all of them were supposed to be Catholic in this movie? I think this scene right here needed to stay in the movie because it would have been great to put an exclamation point on that whole theme because that is exactly what the scene is showing. It would have been awesome. It's too bad that it got cut. Oh, you are absolutely right about that and well said. I love that put an exclamation point on that. that that's a nice turn of phrase there, my friend. Um, I, I just have to comment on the whole... <laughs> Why do demons always got to go with the dead child thing? I mean, that is that is such a fucked up place to go. <laughs> Just the, that that look at that looking under the bed thing, and then the, yeah. the 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 shadow of seeing that. That's that. I, that I don't know how you get more heart wrenching than that. <laughs> that that is just. They don't fuck around. They just don't fuck I, around. I guess not. I mean, fuck. Um, as to the scene itself, I actually saw the scenes that they cut. I, I, I think one of them was not 
just cut, uh, but but maybe per perhaps replaced. Uh, the scene where Janice comes out of the room and slams Sister Charlotte against the wall uh, was at least partially Sister Charlotte's son coming out of the dark and asking her why she wasn't there to save him. I don't know if that turned into her son throwing her against the wall like Janice did to her, uh, but the son and Janice entering the room is practically the same shot. Uh, but let's get into the movie itself, Nim. Done. Let's do it. So, on to the movie and some points that stick out uh, to me about the movie. So, first of all, Maltus is the big bad in this movie. Um, in the movie, Maltus is portrayed as charcoal black. And John Leonetti, director of Annabelle, implied that he wanted Malthus to look this way because, in his mind, Malthus has spent so much time in or around the fires of hell and it has charred his skin. It is also why he has burned footprints. I personally also wonder if he's been charred from his time in the armories of hell forging weapons to destroy the world as we talked about his uh, traditional role back in our last podcast go watch it right now and click like subscribe while you're at it uh about annabelle so um what do you think about all that mike that that theory about forging weapons is a possible one according to the lore we discussed last episode on malthus like you mentioned uh, the lore speaks of Malthus building a tower and filling it with weapons of war. Granted, my theory is that Annabelle is that tower and that the souls that Malthus gathers are the weapons that arm his men of war. Uh, but I see no reason why Malthus could not have spent time in hell curating a specific collection of souls from the fires of hell and forging them with hellfire for a tower that he might make one day. Uh, the handprints and the footprints leaving black marks seem to imply that Malthus himself is somehow spiritually hot with hellfire. I mean, there is no smoke coming off the ground where he steps on it, and yet there is a burn mark. True, true. I mean, the alternative theory is uh, he could be uh, Golgothan a la Dogma, but um, <laughs> that's a pretty shitty theory if you catch my drift, so... <laughs> <laughs> that is, in fact, the shittiest theory, to quote your play on words there. <laughs> wait, wait. That was shit talking about a shit demon. That's like shit squared. Seriously, though. <laughs> Great reference, Dark Lord. And luckily, I brought my deodorizer to knock out the strong odors because the shit is getting deep in here, and you need an evil trivia pie piece for that reference. There you go, sir. Yeah, you were here, <laughs> folks. If you're watching this episode, you're in deep shit. So, but it's too late now. So, put on those big boy and girl pants and use your deodorizer. So, uh, enough of my craft fixation, though. And on to other fixations, because I've got quite a few of them. So, uh, if you look at the picture that Sister Charlotte shows Mr. Mullins, uh, the one from Romania, you can see phallic in the darkness there. Now, I love this for a number of reasons. First, they really tied the different pieces of the universe together, and this is a clear reference to a future movie, The Nun. Uh, mm -hmm. Second, it really makes you wonder what kind of grand scheme is going on here. What overriding plan is taking place behind the scenes that encompasses decades and involves so many different moving pieces? I mean, we'll probably never get the answer to that, but heck yeah, I love it. I mean, give that a stab signal, please. Hell yeah. Sweet. Yeah, I mean, I love when they tie all this stuff together. But yeah. um, 
On that note, though, I would also be remiss if I didn't say that the mask that Mrs. Mullins is wearing is most likely the same one that is seen within the Warren's Haunted Objects Room in The Conjuring in 2013. That's crazy. Oh, you know what? I, I think I think you're right about that. I think I remember seeing that now. That that is that is a nice tie in there. I like that. I, I I really love how the Conjuring universe ties together its seemingly separate movies into a larger story. And the Annabelle trilogy is a big part of how that is done. Annabelle is the linchpin for the curse of La Llorona, as well as Annabelle, as it introduces Father Perez, and he is the one link that movie has to the franchise. But like you mentioned, it ties into the Nun as well, which is also connected to the second Conjuring film. It's just it's just beautiful how all that fits together for me as a writer exactly i mean you heard it from the mouth of a madman in a mask folks when <laughs> horror movies fit together nicely all is wrong and beautiful in the world let's get another stab <laughs> signal and a great countless corpses amen for the wrongness in horror movies font and fit together and how it's beautiful stab signal please amen <laughs> to Janice's mano a mano encounter with Maltus. And to be fair to the charred one, it was more boot the ass on a bota a culo than hand to hand, but you get my meaning. Um, it's always been curious to me that no one hears Janice scream and Maltus uses his wonder twin powers to assume the shape of B, uh, B Mullins, that is, and give her a sting she'll never forget. I mean, it's possible that Maltus is capable of warping and distorting reality. It's also possible that the rest group is hard of hearing or just doesn't give a fuck. So you decide, folks, you know. <laughs> we got to leave some shit up to you. You got to decide where you stand on that. But um, I, <laughs> I will say this. If you go with choice A, what would come later probably validates your choice, by the way. If you went with choice B or C, where either... Uh, they're all hard of hearing or they don't give a fuck. Uh, we need to talk a lot. <laughs> uh, so after B comes for Janice, she is blasted out of her chair and flies up into the rafters. Now, either the Golgothan inhabited her intestines and gave her the strongest <laughs> fart in human history, or that's one possibility, or Maltus is messing with time and space. Either way, she gets thrown into the rafters, screams her little lungs out, and every outside could give a fuck. They don't care. So um, I think they were all on the payroll, but that's just me. If it were me doing this, you got to give some people on the inside, and there they are. You know, I mean, we have a franchise to establish here, folks, and they took the money. They're like, fuck that girl. You know, we get the money, and the franchise kicks off. So I might be wrong. I could be completely off base here. But that's Dark Lord Nem speaking. What do you think, Mike? <laughs> uh, well, I'm thinking if it was the Golgothan, that would be shit splatter that, that really only Art the Clown could appreciate. <laughs> True. I have, 
I have to assume that it was something like Malthus warping and distorting the sound, though. Uh, particularly the scene where Janice was yeeted out of the chair. Like you said, she goes clear up into the rafters. That is plenty high enough for everyone to get a full blast of her high-pitched scream. Everyone upstairs was sleeping, so it was otherwise quiet except for a mouse. That absolutely had to have been a demonic manipulation of sound waves themselves, or perhaps even uh, he created like a, like a bubble of sorts uh, around the event to block off any sound. Uh, in my opinion, it has to be something like that because it defies the laws of physics. <sighs> so no giant fart thing? Damn. <laughs> Damn. And when you say bubble, be, ca be careful saying bubble if there's a possibly a Golgothan involved. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, too bad on the no giant fart though. Oh well. Um, let's see. Uh, a couple more things. Um, Esther Mullins is shown as bedridden for twelve years following the death of her daughter, uh, and she's you know being taken care of by her husband and is in the house and everything. But no explanation is given as to why she is suffering. Though I always assumed she had a breakdown mentally and physically uh, from the trauma of her daughter's death. There is another way to look at it, though, if we bring in another Conjuring prequel here, The Nun from 2018. In that movie, we see that a demonic presence can infect and physically distort land and people physically. So is it possible that Malta slipped into Esther as she had a moment of doubt following the death of her daughter that then led to the demonic attack upon her by Malta, the attack which left her skin scarred and scorched, uh, because that was certainly no ordinary scar. Of that, I am certain. So there is that to play with. Uh, it's kind of out there as a theory. But what do you think? Um, I, 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 I like the theory. I like the theory. But I, I have. I would like to alter it just, just, just slightly. Put put a slightly different slant on it. Um, I think that Esther Mullins was the first to realize that they had invited a, a demonic force into their house. When B suddenly turned into a demon-like creature and came towards Esther Mullins, the combination of Malthus being in the form of B and yet moving like a demon inside broke Mullins with terror uh, and and her and heartache and and it weakened her faith and allowed Malthus to attack her. I think that perhaps Samuel's faith remained strong enough that it didn't happen to him until Malthus has returned uh oh i'm sorry uh i was just taking notes for my next uh uh never mind let's put this down now uh it's not important please continue so uh <laughs> <laughs> As for the effect that Malthus' presence um, had on Esther Mullins, um, I could totally go with that idea. I mean, uh, look at the effect that Malthus had on an inanimate doll. Its skin was discolored and it became rough around the edges and developed an overbite. All of that added to Annabelle's creepiness. But if Malthus' presence did all of that to a doll, what do you imagine it could do to human flesh after oppression for a period of time? Well, I think it restores that youthful glow while tightening and moisturizing the skin. <laughs> um, that, or we've already seen what it does, and it makes you fuddly and eventually dead. Uh, so it's one or the other. Other. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but also, <laughs> uh, is it just me, or was there a distinct design on the front door of the Mullins house? A design where there is a row of upside down crosses and a row of right side up crosses is this a symbol of some sort of 
spiritual conflict in the house? Or was the architect just feeling conflicted about their allegiances on the day they designed the door? So what say you? You know, I was hoping you were going to catch that. Um, I tend to look for meaning in everything in the film, and I did notice that. Uh, but I did not know if this was a case of a cigar just being a cigar. But I totally think that the that the crosses on the door were a subtle statement about the, the waging of battle uh, uh, between the forces of good and evil. I suppose when you get technical about it, Malthus never appeared until long after the house was built, so story-wise, I'm not sure that fits. Uh, but that does not mean that the filmmakers could not have thrown that into the set for aesthetic symbolism. So what you're saying is it's probably just a cigar. But I remember this president once. Um, Uh-oh. Hold on. I'm getting a message in my ear. Yes. Legal counsel has just warned me not to go there. So, uh, okay. Uh, I'm not fucking with those people. So <laughs> demonic dolls I will take on any day, but not them. <laughs> Back to you. (laughs) (laughs) This just in. Black helicopters are now circling the Howard residence. We've received a report from the scene that the Dark Lord has literally unleashed hell on Earth to fight them off while we finish the show. That is dedication, folks. (laughs) It's it's dangerous here, folks. I don't know quite what to say. I'm looking at the helicopters. They're coming down. Uh, People and uh, sunglasses and uh, assault rifles are coming in from my house. I may not make it. <laughs> uh, yeah, the things I do for this show, folks. I had dinner reservations at seven, and now I got to clean up this shit before I can get to my fava beans and Chianti. So there it is. The things, the sacrifices I make for all of you. So. Actually, actually. I, I have bad news about the fava beans and Chianti, Mr. Lecter. Um, all that is available is uh, sauteed brain a la Krenler. Uh, but those who have had it, even children, have said that they love it. Um, how is that for the first boomerang evil trivia pie piece grab ever, Dark Lord? Mm. <laughs> evil piece, yes. Well, of course, I will have some of the brain, but... Please, I've had it before and it's not very filling. Just put my evil piece on top of the brain of the Kindler, and there it is. Pie a la Kindler. So um, I gobble that up. Yum, 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 yum. Yeah, baby. Nothing hits the spot like a good evil trivia pie piece. But you know what they say a moment on the lips and forever working it off in my torture chamber in the basement. So. We were talking earlier about how the films in the Conjuring universe fit together, and in my opinion, Dalek makes an appearance twice in Animal Creation, although her face is not seen. The first time was when Janish got pushed into the barn uh, to be possessed by Malthus uh, via Annabelle Mullins. If you look at the hands pushing the wheelchair, you can see that they are bony, and the flesh discoloration is the same as Valak in The Conjuring 2 and in The Nun, and I assume that in it's the same in The Nun too as well, but as of the recording i have not seen it yet uh you'll note that valak is still dressed like a nun although the outfit is closer to the garb of sister charlotte um anyway you see these same bony discolored um hands and arms reaching out from the well to pull linda down in it but she is rescued by sister charlotte what do you think about that and that that's freaking awesome man i i had noticed that before and you're always catching stuff like this while i'm busy fucking around and fighting out with various evil entities (laughs) See, kids, stay in school. You know, so. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate it. No problem. <laughs> uh, let's see. What else? 
Um, did you also know that there is an after credit scene that shows Valak, which is the nun, floating down a hallway, and she is played by Bonnie Ahrens once again in an uncredited role. You know, I only just discovered that in credit scene with Valak. I had no idea it was there until just a few weeks ago. Uh, that is a solid catch there, my friend. And 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 kudos to you for for actually staying on to the very end of the credits uh, to catch that. Uh, so we know that Malthus is not fully bonded uh, to Annabelle until Janice, aka Annabelle Higgins, kills herself and bleeds on the doll. Uh, so really locking up Annabelle in that room covered in pages from the Bible wasn't really stopping Malthus. In fact, it wasn't really accomplishing much of anything. And yet it would seem that until the kids got into Mullen's house, Malthus went dormant for a time. At least the Mullins seemed to act as if locking up the doll in the room put a stop to it because they were in shock and terrified when they found out the evil doll was back. Mr. Mullen specifically could not believe it until he heard that the doll was out of the closet. Uh, but as you can see when the girls arrive, Malthus is coming back, but slowly. First we see him as B coming out from behind the door and walking towards Janice when she was looking out the window. Then we see the lights flickering at dinner. These are both signs that Malthus is coming back before Janice ever unlocks the closet with Annabelle in it. I almost wonder if there was something about the doll even then that connected Malthus to the doll even before the summoning ritual with Janice. Uh, because Malthus' power levels did seem to go up uh, once the doll was free again. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I gotta say, I don't think it's the doll itself that is empowering Malthus. Rather, I think it's the subservience of Janice empowering the demon. So it's a commonly held belief that evil only has as much power as we give it. Um, I, on the other hand, defy that belief, but, uh, you know, I digress. <laughs> uh, but if we accept that this is true uh, for the others, then we must assume that as people fall under the demon's sway, his power increases. Even a seemingly trivial act, like freeing a doll, is a sign that Malthus has a greater foothold in the world. Um, that's my thinking on the whole thing, though. How about that? Well, kind of like before, I can certainly see that theory working, but it, it kind of in tandem with the, with this new theory I have based on you just saying that freeing a doll is a sign that Malthus has a greater foothold in this world. Um, that kind of inspired me. So, so check this out. Uh, the Mullins allowed Malthus to possess the doll by giving him permission. What if Annabelle is Malthus's foothold and maybe even his anchor to this world because he was given that permission? His power was increasing as his grip around Janice slowly tightened, like you said, but when his foothold to this world was released from that room, Malthus' power levels increased vastly. Any thoughts on that amalgamated theory, Nim? Let me think about that for a moment. You know, I, I dig it. I dig it. Yeah, let's roll with that. And let me make sure the M secretary I ordered uh, gets all that shit down. So, uh, yeah. Yo, Chuckles. Yeah, get that shit, write it down, and get back to work. All right. Back to you. <laughs> Fucking Chuckles. Come on. Get that, get that shit down. I'm totally picturing a cackling demon court, court reporter in the background. And Chuckles <laughs> just fucking cracks me up. He <laughs> smells though, man. I've got sulfur all up in this room, but that's a whole other thing, so... I am the Dark Lord of a Hundred Realms. What is your name? <laughs> Chuckles. 
<laughs> anyway, <laughs> so Janice had to unlock the closet and open the door to release Annabelle, or rather, to keep Malthus from her. Uh, they had a priest pray over the closet when they first put Annabelle in it, and I wonder if there was not some sort of spiritual seal that was broken when the door was first open. I say that because Janice locked the door again, and Malthus was simply able to open it again. I know that things like circles of protection can be broken by breaking the seal of the circle. I, I also know that the Warrens had priests come in and bless the case that imprisoned Annabelle twice per month and the room itself once per week. Um, I guess my questions are, uh, do blessings work like that in Catholicism, and, and do they get weaker over time? <laughs> you're Catholic, Nem, so... You're kind of my default go-to guy for all questions about it. <laughs> so, is that how things work in Catholicism? Uh, well, um, I will give you the best answer my I have, and the simple answer to that question is uh, yes and no. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, it, I think it all depends on what kind of blessing and what tradition you believe in. Um, like, the, for instance, the blessing on an altar, uh, for instance, is considered a per is considered permanent, and an altar has to be deconsecrated when a church is no longer used. However, that said. Um, we also believe that every time a mass is said there, that it only strengthens the ties between God and that location, you know, wherever two or more are gathered in my name. Um, so, however, in this case, uh, in the case of a blessing to contain evil, it really depends on your point of view. I mean, I think most Catholics would agree that evil is constantly tripping, trying to chip away at faith and that which is sacred. In that sense, the, the prudent pragmatic Catholic reinforces the blessings every now and then just in case. However, going strictly by dogma, you would believe that evil can never triumph. I mean, I, I have to say I fall in the first category and I think most that actually deal with this type of thing do as well. Um, but I have to say that there are many uh, who are Catholic who discount the existence of demons themselves. Uh, they discount the possibility of an organized evil and poo-poo the whole thing. So that's my wishy-washy wishy answer. So there it is. Back to you. <laughs> You know, uh, I, just as a quick side note, they brought up that whole thing. I don't know if you've seen The Pope's Exorcist, uh, but they brought up that whole thing in that movie. They had actually a council of, like, cardinals and shit that, that, that actually didn't believe in demons at all. An entire council of them uh, trying to tell The Pope's Exorcist what's going on. <laughs> that That is some messed up shit. But I not only agree, I have some more evidence to support that idea, in fact. Um, I can't help but think about the passage in Revelation about the incense burning before God representing the prayers of the saints and how one of the duties of the Levite priests uh, was to keep incense burning 24 hours a day. Then with the armor of God, the Bible talks about putting it on and taking up your cross each day and following him. All of that seems to suggest to me uh, that these blessings and prayers should be recurring. Uh, so I'm on the same side with you are on that one. Nice, nice, cool. Uh, now, um... Let's stop talking about blessings and prayers. Uh, it triggers me. So, <laughs> Oh, man. The Dark Lord was about to start crackling and jerking around like Annabelle turned Malthus at the side of a cross. Uh, so yeah. no more of that, then. Igor, <laughs> gather the minions, sacrifice a virgin in the Dark Lord's honor so that he may be cleansed of this holiness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, 
So when when Janice looked at that picture with B and Annabelle, only the eyes of B lit up in the dark. That that tells me something uh, uh, that that maybe maybe Malthus had gotten to her to to get her to offer up her soul to him. I think that that is why he is able to take her form and act like her enough to fool the fool the Mullins for a time. Um, if you remember when Linda goes to hide underneath the stairs and finds the Annabelle doll, you can see the eyes of the demon glowing in the dark behind the doll. Also, as demons possess humans and not dolls, perhaps it was this connection to B that allowed Malthus to bond with the Annabelle doll. While she resisted, I think that once Malthus severely injured Janice's, Janice's faith was significantly weakened because she felt weak and helpless against the demon. I also wonder if Malthus might have gotten by on a technicality there. In the form of B, he asks Janice if she will help him. And Janice does not say no. She says, what do you need? In other words, yes, I will help you. Maybe in a sort of gray area because he did tell her he wanted her soul. That counted. I don't know. Uh, but by the rules, she had to offer up her soul to Malthus for him to take it, and it certainly seems as if he had done so. I, I wonder if, when we saw him in the barn in B's form, he tackled Janice's and vomited that black liquid right into her mouth as a means of taking her soul without having to give her life like he requested of Mia in the first Annabelle movie. Um... I do know that out of all the girls, Janice was the only one we saw going to confession with Sister Charlotte. When she was about to go into B's room, she prayed for forgiveness. Granted, saying, Lord, forgive me for the sin I'm about to commit doesn't work, but, I mean, that's what she did. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying Janice was a saint, uh, but she did seem to have genuine faith. Uh, but when Malthus revealed himself and yeeted her out of the chair and dropped her quite a ways onto the floor, crippling her, I think that was when her faith was shaken. God did not protect her. And as we saw, he did not protect M the Mullins either. Janice talked about how no one would adopt her now that she was a cripple. She would just be a burden. It is my opinion that Malthus offered her something like being able to walk again if she gave in. Maybe she didn't know how, how Malthus taking her soul would go down and that's why she was scared when it happened. I I don't know. What? Any thoughts on that, Nim? Yeah. I think that that's entirely possible, um, if not likely. I mean, the devil and his minions prey on our weaknesses, our frailties, and our narcissism, to be quite frank. I mean, I know it's harsh to accuse a crippled little girl who longs to be adopted of narcissism, mea culpa. Uh, but in the long run, she's doing what all of us do. We fail to see the larger picture in the battle of good and evil, the battle for our soul, and instead, we focus on our immediate needs and immediate ills. Uh, if you never do this, you are a more perfect being even than Jesus, as far as my reading goes. So congratulations to you. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but I also say not all evil tribulations are the cause of some evil force. Uh, but this one, in this particular case, certainly is. And Janice is tested. And I'm just going to say it. She fails. Um, if... I were in a dark lord, and I'd say I, it's it's kind of sad watching what happens to her. I mean, if you want to find a biblical story where someone was sorely tested that this way, uh, look to the story of Job. I mean, Job passed, but Job is an example that most of us cannot follow. And so there it is. Back to you. 
You know, that's a nice comparison and, and kind of makes me wonder if Malthus had called out Janus like Satan called out Job and God accepted the challenge. The Bible does say that we are give, we are not given more than we can bear, though, and, and God knew that she would fail. It seems strict, but uh, was there an issue with Janus trying to use her own strength? Maybe. I don't know. That That is getting off onto a whole other discussion we don't have time for, but I, I still love the comparison to Job there. Uh so I think I finally figured out who the mystery villainess is. Uh, there was originally a plot in the final act of the film uh, where Miss Mullins dies and reanimates and becomes uh, the main antagonist for much of the rest of the film, but it was removed. However, I think that there are a couple of scenes where her part stayed in. For instance, Miss Mullins' torso and arms were reanimated uh, when she chased Linda back into the dumbwaiter. Uh, I think that might have been the scene where she comes back originally. Uh, the scene where Miss uh, Mullins appears to the girls uh, while they are under the sheet uh, uh, in their room uh, is another one of them. The mask she is wearing would make sense uh, if it was if it was Miss Mullins as she wore that. I don't know, like a porcelain kind of phantom of the opera kind of mask to cover up uh, where Malthus had torn out her eye. But there seems to be a blackening around the eye that Malthus didn't tear out uh, on the right eye of her mask rather than on the opposite side. Like the mask was sort of the opposite of her face. Uh, one scene that did not remain in the film was... Uh, and was the bit with the scarecrow turning into Malthus. Um, that was initially supposed to be Miss Mullins. If you'll notice, the scarecrow is hanging on the wall, just like Miss Mullins <coughs> was left crucified on the wall. Hmm. You know, I can see what you're saying, and I think it makes sense. Um, I'm not sure how I feel them about them taking that out, though. I mean, on the one hand, having a reanimated corpse drive the final act of the film seems cool. You know, on the other hand, a creature-driven antagonist really grounds this movie in reality. I mean, it's a sick, morbid, twist reality, which is the best kind, in my opinion. Amen, brother. <laughs> but uh, it is, yeah, it, and I get an amen for the sick, morbid reality. So, but, uh, yeah, it's, but it's reality nonetheless. And I think that in this film, they're going for a more incorporeal, supernatural threat. And if I had to guess, that's probably why the scene was removed. That's my best guess, though. I, I think that you were right about the type of threat they were building in the film. And perhaps Esther <laughs> Mullins would have taken away from Malthus, who was clearly supposed to be uh, out in the forefront in this movie. And just as a quick side note, speaking of Miss Mullins, last episode you brought up how Mia and John got their names from the actors in Rosemary's Baby, and you also mentioned Robert the Doll, owned by one Robert Eugene Otto. Well, check this out. Uh, you combine those details for Annabelle Creation, and you get the actress playing Miss Mullins' real-life name being Miranda Otto. The same last name of the owner of Robert the Doll. But I might be reaching there. What do you think? That's cool as hell. And I don't care if it's a reach, because I'm going with it. It's now canon, folks. Reach, my yeah. friend, reach. Reach for the stars, brother. I mean, take yourself a stab signal while you're at it. Give it to yourself. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, baby. Thank you, sir. I love that stab signal you made, by the way, my friend. It is very cool. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I mean, I try to provide the gruesome gifts that keep on giving. So. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I think that, at least initially, 
Malthus was kind of like Pennywise, or it, rather. He primes children with fear. I think he goes after them first for the same reason that it does, because they are more susceptible to fear, and their imaginations are bigger. Plus, did you notice there seems to be a 12-year cycle with Malthus? He first came after B had died. Then the Mullins locked up Annabelle, and Malthus rested for a time. 12 years, in fact. Then 12 years later, uh, the girls from the orphanage came and all the stuff in the movie happened. 12 years after that, Annabelle and her boyfriend came back and killed the Higgins family and the ritual was performed. I don't know about you, Nan, but that sounds a lot like it to me. 12 years, huh? Uh, hold on for a minute. I think it'll mark this on my calendar. Yeah, 12 <laughs> years. Uh, yeah, um, seriously though, I see the pattern, but I'm not sure what to make of it. Uh, I can't think of a reason why the demon would have a 12-year cycle. I mean, speed that shit up already. It would be an interesting question to ask the creators in a con sometime, though. It really would. That it would be. Uh, but but for the moment, I, I think I know why a demon might have a 12-year cycle. The same reason they do things in threes, to mock God. Twelve is a sacred number, spiritually speaking, and is often connected to power, government, uh, or bringing about God's kingdom. Jacob had twelve sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel. When the Israelites were given instructions from God how to build their altars, they were told to use twelve stones. King Solomon had twelve officials over Israel. You'll also note that Jesus chose twelve disciples. In the book of Revelations, it says that there are twelve gates in heaven and twelve angels over them. I could go on and on, but I think you're getting the idea. Uh, see, and I was just thinking of crude references to delayed human biology. Uh, yeah, uh, that's why I tell the jokes and Mike brings the facts, folks. And with that... <laughs> Let's get to something we both do well, and let's count the corpses. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Now we have reached our favorite part about talking about horror movies. And that, like my friend just said, is counting the corpses and talking about the kills. The very first corpse is the young Annabelle's B. Mullins. She was accidentally run over by a truck. You know... For not showing much, the death of B was pretty intense for about two seconds there. The cutaway before you see anything, uh, but that doll with the busted face uh, says that she has earned her Gage Creed Award. Wait, damn. Did I just say that? I, I think that maybe hanging out with the Dark Lord all the time is having an effect on me. <laughs> but but speaking of the Dark Lord, I believe you wanted to talk about corpse number two. Am I right, Nim? Absolutely. Though, I do have to say that the little girl dying hit me in my dark heart, so... I hate to see little kids killed because they usually come back as evil little kids, and I have no time for that. So, <laughs> no uh, fair, no fair, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Uh, let's see. So, next up in the Yeet Yellow Pages is good old Samuel Mullins himself. Now, we don't see this kill, but we come to learn that Malthus killed Samuel off screen using Janice's body. However, just saying that doesn't do it justice. It was more than just a kill, folks. It was a desecration. Dude looked like he was drained, and not in the way you look where you need a cigarette afterwards. It wasn't that kind of drain, folks. He was discolored, and it was giving off Raiders of the Lost Ark vibes. But I have to say, this is my favorite body of the movie, but I can't really rate the kill as I didn't see it. I have a picture of it in my head, though, and it's pretty damn gnarly. So... Calm the fuck down, Maltus, all right? <laughs> <laughs> 
Damn, the shit talking to demons does no end. <laughs> if we're not here next month, folks, you know why. <laughs> I think Samuel Mullen's death is my favorite death in Annabelle creation. With how Malthus pulled all his fingers back away from the cross, like bent them all back. That oh, was just burly. It did God knows what to him to fuck him up so bad. Um, corpse number three is Esther Mullins. She was ripped in half by Malthus, <laughs> using Janice's body off screen and then crucified on the wall of her bedroom. Um, I think this is my favorite corpse of the movie, actually. Good lord, man. Someone didn't watch The Exorcist enough as a baby or something. Woof up, <laughs> Points for gruesomeness, though. Uh, so, um, the end of this movie leads right into the beginning of Annabelle, and we see Pete and Sharon Higgins buy it at the hands of Annabelle and her soon-to-be-yeeted boy toy, which we all hate. But, <laughs> go, cops, go! Uh, so, yeah. Show them Haddonfield killed it much as how it's done. You know, those cops took that, those lead belchers and lit them up. So we are counting these corpses, but they only get the other half of their score from Annabelle. So that puts us at 3.5 kills for Annabelle creation. I also have to say <clears throat> that this gets my honorable mention award for the slasher fan in all of us. These kills are pure slasher material and the things little boys' dreams are made of. So thank you for showing us some slasher kills in the movie. So, Yeah. Agreed. And bonus points for me as well for the pure slasher glory of it. You know that I love that. Uh, but I also have another potential death, at least a, a kind of death. I, I think it's safe to say that the little girl Janice is for all intents and purposes dead. She is no longer in possession of her body, and I say that because Janice would not have renamed herself Annabelle. Uh, what do you think of that, Nam? Is is Janice death number 4.5? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the being is known as Janice no longer exists. So yeah, I will give that one to you. You take that, and you run with it, baby. You run with that dead Janice. Hell yeah, I'm running with the devil, baby. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> da, da. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, so so let's get into our final thoughts on the film. Um, Annabelle creation is very scary, and they did a great job holding, uh, keeping the old school feel that the Conjuring films had. I think that it is safe to say that Annabelle creation is my favorite film in the trilogy. Uh, on one level, I lost a child much younger than Annabelle Mullins, and I know how much that hurts. So the Mullins praying to anything that would have allowed them to see their child again uh, is not so far-fetched to me. On another level, their isolation from everyone uh, made it all the more terrifying because there was no one around that was close. After all that stuff happened to Sister Charlotte and the girls, and after they had called the police, you'll notice it was daytime when we saw the police at the Mullins residence. That means it was likely hours before anyone could get there. All that noise that was made did not attract a single person. Uh, I guess I guess I think about it kind of like how uh, the people in the thing uh, were isolated and how that added to their problems. I think that something similar was going on here. Uh, all in all, I give Annabelle Creation a 3.85 out of 5 skulls and a 2.75 out of 5 on the kills. But what about you, Nim? Uh, do you have any final thoughts on Annabelle Creation before we move on? You know, something you just said, uh, sparked in me, and I got to bring this up real quick before I get to my uh, other final thoughts. But uh, 
I remember a quote in Sherlock Holmes where he said, the greatest evil isn't to be found in the crimes, the worst crime-ridden alleys of a city, but out in the isolated spots of the country where no one can hear or see what is being done. You know, mm. that is exactly what we're talking about here. Exactly, Good stuff. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I have... I will say that um, I think this movie accomplished its goals. It's different from the first one. It feels like a classic horror movie of the supernatural subgenre, and it establishes the mythos of both the Conjuring and Annabelle franchises. Um, in fact, I'll go so far as to say it's super successful at doing that. I think it's frightening in its concept, and the implications are completely sinister. Unfortunately, I've watched so many of these types of films that I've become somewhat jaded. I mean, I knew a lot of what would happen before it did, uh, but is that on me or the filmmaker? Um, I'm going to go with me, you know, because most people haven't sat there and watched these movies for 40 plus years all the time. So, uh, (laughs) so I will give this movie uh, four out of five skulls as a general rating, but I have to give it 2.5 out of five skulls on the kills with two of that rating going to the final slasher kill and the crucifixion. So that's my final rating for the movie. All right. All right. It doesn't sound like we're too off, too far off on our scores there. And that about wraps up our Annabelle creation coverage. But that isn't the end of this episode. That's right. As promised, we are covering Annabelle Comes Home from 2019, which is also, which is a so-called intraquil. Um, a rare type of sequel that takes place entirely within the time frame of another film in the series rather than coming before or after it. Check this out. The Conjuring opens up in 1968 with Ed and Lorraine Warren taking the Annabelle doll and then skips to 1971 for the main part of the movie. Annabelle Comes Home picks up with The Conjuring's uh, 1968 opening scene and then skips one year with the rest of the movie taking place in 1969. Annabelle Comes Home came right at, came out right after The Nun in 2018 and, is, and as the seventh installment in The Conjuring Universe franchise. So how about that? There's a kind of sequel I have never even heard of before this movie. Yeah, and I thought Interquill was something you took when you had a cough or you had a cold or something. <laughs> Um, yeah, the beginning of Annabelle Comes Home takes up right after the end of the opening scene in The Conjuring, where the Warrens take possession of Annabelle from the two nurses. In fact, that particular scene is the focal point for all of the Annabelle movies. The first two are about Annabelle coming into her power and wreaking havoc. Then we have her shackled by the Warrens. And then we have finally her attempt at revenge in Annabelle Comes Home. Now, I think it's unique to have such continuity within the universe and within the franchise. And it's an impressive bit of writing, I do have to say. I mean, the beginning of this film also plays... You all right? Oh, yeah. You're petting the cat. It, it, it's, it's my cat, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were like... You were like summoning something there for me. I was like, oh, okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I heard I heard a very loud purring, and I was like, oh, he's petting the cat. Uh, so the beginning of this film also plays on the real accounts of Ed and Lorraine Warren as they return Annabelle to their home. Of course, Hollywood takes the reports of the matter and dials it up to a thousand, but it does follow the general tale. So, <clears throat> you know. As a writer, I am impressed by that as well. Uh, to get all of that from a single scene is talented. And speaking of talent, 
Annabelle Comes Home was written and directed by Gary Dauberman. Uh, that is monumental as Annabelle Comes Home uh, would be Dauberman's directorial debut. Uh, James Wan, who also served as producer with Peter Safran, co-wrote the treatment for the film with Dauberman. Annabelle Comes Home was always intended to be rated R, as that was what the fans wanted and expected from the film, according to writer-director Gary Dauberman. But here's a funny note. The only reason the film has the use of the word fuck one time, <laughs> one time they say fuck, and the illusion where Daniel is stabbed was to push the film's rating to get that R rating. Um, Annabelle Comes Home is dedicated to Lorraine Warren, who passed away in April of 2019, two months before the film's release. Yeah, you know, I, I remember hearing the news when Lorraine passed away, and um, I'd seen her on some different TV shows and stuff. Um, I knew nothing about her personally, but she seemed like a genuinely nice lady from what I saw of her publicly. So it was touching to see the movie dedicated to her. And, and now I'm going to get that out of my system. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I totally, I totally agree with you there. That, 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 that was a real classy touch uh, to the film. I thought. Yeah. Uh, let's see a couple more interesting notes. Um, the character of Anthony Rios was created as a proxy for Judy Warren's real life husband, uh, Tony Spira. Uh, while she and Spira didn't actually meet until adulthood, Gary Dauberman asked their permission to create the childhood bully character to potentially serve as a romantic interest for Judy if the series continues to follow her character as she grows up. In real life, Tony mentored under Ed and Lorraine Warren and is a paranormal researcher in his own right. Tony and Judy are still happily married today, and they live in the Warren home still, where they are now in charge of the museum that's there, and its various artifacts. So they took that over from the Warrens. Hold on. I'm trying to wrap my head around being bullied by someone and then falling in love and marrying with <clears throat> marrying them later. Remember what, I, <laughs> remember what I said about I like pain? <laughs> I see. I see. I, I didn't mean to kink shame Judy Warren there. <laughs> As I understand it, Judy was pretty much sheltered from all of the paranormal stuff going on with her parents. Unlike in the film, Judy never even saw Annabelle until she was an adult, but still said that it seemed evil. All of that to say that it would seem the Conjuring universe takes quite a bit of liberties when it comes to Judy Warren. Uh, but let's dig into the movie itself, Nim. Sure thing. And, and I do have to give respect to the Warrens for keeping their daughter out of that business mm -hmm. until she, she was of an age to be prepared for it. So kudos to them on that as well. Um, so as as I mentioned in the last episode, there are numerous appearances of Raggedy Ann dolls in the series to pay homage to the actual Annabelle doll. Um, in this film, Judy is watching a game show when a couple went to trip to Vegas and a giant Raggedy Ann doll. Congratulations. You can go to Vegas with Annabelle. Good luck. So, uh, believe it or not. There's Jason goes to New York and there's Annabelle goes to Vegas. Yeah. Actually... Oh, Lord. Uh, believe it or not, yeah, she's in there playing craps right next to Chucky. So, uh... Believe it or not, the Annabelle doll has appeared in other movies because of the influence of directors or producers from the Annabelle trilogy. For some reason, and we love them for it, they love to put her in their films, Annabelle that is, as an Easter egg. To date, all of these appearances have been in DCEU movies. <laughs> is Annabelle cursed the DCEU? Is that what's happened? So um, 
Additionally, I have to note the appearance of DC Comics, The Demon and Swamp Thing, and Annabelle Comes Home. That was very cool. It was very cool to see that in there. So, uh, also, when Lorraine picks up the mourner's bracelet at the end of the film, the cylindrical artifact standing next to it is the Atlantean holographic key from 2018's Aquaman. Does this mean that The Conjuring is canon to the DCEU? I hope so, because I would love to see John Constantine in the Warren's future. How fucking cool would that be? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, that would be so badass. If they ever do that second Constantine movie, they should have him either pick up something or drop something off at the Warren's Occult Museum. My geeky little heart would just fucking explode. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be awesome? He's like... Hey, tell Fry that exorcism on me, love. I got it all taken care of over here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, baby. (laughs) Yeah, don't tease me like that, man. I mean, I'm already geeking out, and we're just over here bullshitting about it. I mean, Christ, (laughs) if they actually did that, I'd literally be on the edge of my seat until the movie came out. So, (laughs) Warner Brothers, get on it, please. So, Hell yeah. uh, I will also note that James Wan, the genius behind the Conjuring universe, directed 2018's Aquaman, and he's back for the sequel, I believe. So um, if you look closely in that movie, Aquaman, that is, when Mira and Arthur are boarding Mira's ship, there's an Annabelle doll laying at the bottom of the ocean. And legend has it that Annabelle is responsible for the trench. Read the comments or watch the movie, folks. So we're not going to give you all the explanation for that, but... Yeah. <laughs> so so Annabelle is so evil that her corruption seeped back through the temporal vortex and corrupted the ancient Atlanteans who ventured into the deep, thus creating the trench. I fucking love that shit. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. Know it, man. Oh, uh, let's see. The next appearance of Annabelle was in 2019 Shazam. Shazam! I didn't turn into Shazam. What the fuck? Come on. Uh, Directed by David Sandberg of Annabelle Creation. When young Billy Batson gets in trouble with the law after robbing a pawn shop, you can see Annabelle sitting on the shelf as the cops walk in. He's also dropped her into the second Shazam film, Fury of the Gods. In Billy Batson's first scene in Fury of the Gods, his pediatrician has a therapy session with Billy, and Annabelle is just sitting there fucking around, listening in, and she sits on a small table. I mean, that's fucked up, folks. What, what the hell is Annabelle sitting in on a therapy session? But that's just me. <laughs> Damn. Therapy sessions with the demon-possessed doll. That could be yeah. interesting. <laughs> Well, I feel like what you really want to do here, Billy, is go out and kill some people. I think that would really release some some of that pent-up frustration you have. Billy, well, have, you ever, have you ever thought about ripping people in half and crucifying them on the wall? It does wonders for the skin, and it can really relieve that stress. So. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know about you folks uh, watching or or listening to this, whichever you happen to be doing, uh, but the first thing I'm going to do when we're done here is go back and watch Aquaman and the second Shazam movies and see if I can spot Annabelle. And and what's more is that you deserve an evil trivia pie piece for that eagle-eyed shit there, Dark Lord. Shabam! Yeah! Yeah! Nice! 
Uh, evil pie pieces always go down fine with the blood of my enemies. So here's to you, sir. And here's to you, Pennywise, that's talking about the blood of my enemies. So. <laughs> Bring on the lamenters. We must hear the lamentation of the women. Get out of here, Conan. We weren't talking about you. <laughs> that's right. Fuck. Look at that. McCann Mike's going after Conan now. <laughs> the guy took on a phone. He's going after... <laughs> mm, that's gonna be an Hell epic yeah. fight. I can't wait to see that one. So. <laughs> Conan's badass, but he is not macabre. That's right. <laughs> when the bride dress first appears to Judy Warren and Annabelle comes home, she appears to be walking around the walls and mirrors and then appearing in the other room. While it is not exactly the same, this screamed of Valak to me. After Ed painted the picture of Valak as the nun, and it was hung up in the office, uh, Valak comes out from behind another painting off in the corner, and we see his shadow glide along the walls and make its way uh, around to the painting that Ed did and assume its pose. Then the hands reach out, and Valak's face appears in the painting, and Valak charges at Lorraine Warren in The Conjuring 2. Valak uh, is one to assume control over others to do its bidding. We saw him assume possession over the old man's spirit in The Conjuring 2, and I guess a part of me is wondering if it's not Valak assuming control over some of the spirits or demons in Ed and Lorraine's occult museum with how similar those scenes were. On top of that, Valak is the Marquis of Snakes, and when Daniela uh, was down in the museum just before the future seeing TV turns on by itself, you can hear the hissing and rattling of a rattlesnake. Uh, they don't ever show a snake and yet we hear one. I can't put any other logic to it than that snake was a sign that Balak was in fact there. Uh, what do you think of that, Nam? I think that's a fair guess given what we know. I mean, I think it's one of those sounds that automatically causes tension in people. I mean, if you've been out in the woods before and you hear a rattle of a rattlesnake, you know what I'm talking about. You're having a, a Golgothan moment at that point. So, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's probably the primary goal of that sound in that scene, though, is to, to cause tension to people. But I, I think that for the, the filmmakers, if the more discerning viewer out there puts two and two together, so much the better. So I'm going to say right now, you could take this and put it on your mantelpiece. You, sir, are discerning viewer there, Mike. So get yourself an evil piece and some evil flavored popcorn and munch that bad boy down because you're a discerning viewer. So Ah, oh, fuck yeah. I will take that discerning evil trivia pie piece and gobble it down. Damn. You don't want to see the demon crap that's gonna come out of me later. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. I I, I is that that steaming plate of demon dung we were talking about before? So. That is, that is. We didn't know that, but we were being prophetic. <laughs> uh, but I have to switch gears here to what might be an odd note to talk about in a horror film. Um, but here you go. People call Bob, Bob's Got Balls several times throughout the movie, and it seems to be what be somewhat derogatory. Uh, but when Bob sings that bread song, Everything I Own, to Mary Ellen, and Judy said Bob's got balls, and she meant that he was brave for serenading Mary Ellen despite not being really good at it, I cheered. That was just fucking awesome. Uh, Bob was willing to embarrass himself to woo the girl that he loved, and I think Judy was also saying, you know, well done, Bob. Do you have any thoughts on that moment, Nim? Um, Bob's got balls? So. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I thought it was cute. 
I thought it was a nice moment for the characters and a way to humanize all of them. Um, overall, though, I got to admit that this movie really didn't do do it for me. And balls may be the best way to describe my feeling about this movie. I mean, balls are important. Don't get me wrong. Balls can be used for fun. But I'm not a big fan of almost two hours of sweaty balls in my face. Just me. So, just me. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> that is a quote if I've heard one so far. Uh, watching Annabelle Comes Home is like having sweaty balls in your face, as Dark Lord Nemesis. Uh, but he did not say that he didn't like balls in his face. Keep that in mind. He said that he is not a big fan of sweaty balls in his face. But really, I don't understand that, especially this time of year when sweaty balls are in season. Well, you, you see this elegant, evil little stash I got going on here? It doesn't do well in humidity. And we'll just leave it at that, okay? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Just leave the sweaty balls in my stash right over there. So let's move on from balls now and get into evil baubles, sometimes called artifacts. How'd you like that segue? We're doing baubles now, so over to you. <laughs> All right, we'll call that the sweaty ball segue. <laughs> There, there were a lot of artifacts in the occult museum downstairs in Ed and Lorraine Warren's house, and while I cannot explain them all, there are a few we can tell you about. The samurai armor is actually based on a kind of troll or ogre called an oni from Japanese mythology, though it was likely adopted from Chinese and Buddhist mythologies, uh, who are known for wearing armor and typically wield the huge clubs or kanabo. Uh, but in typical Conjuring Universe tradition, some things are changed, like this one in particular. In the Conjuring universe, the Oni is a demon that possesses whoever wears the armor. Either way, though, an Oni is not just evil, but extremely evil, and they start out as evil men. They certainly seem to imply that the owner of the armor was one such evil man. Well, when these evil men die, they go to what amounts to a Japanese Buddhist hell, or what they call Jigoku. Uh, once there, on and the Oni becomes servants to the king of Jigoku, uh, Amadaya, and their job is to torture the souls of evil people. So in that hell, if you are evil, you will spend eternity being tortured by people even more evil than you. I do wonder if the Oni in hell are in hell in that scenario. If they have to be extremely evil to become an Oni, perhaps it is never coming to rest that is their hell in that scenario. I don't know. Um, I also think that there is a blending of stories here. If you listen uh, to what is happening uh, when we are hearing the Japanese man killing his family, uh, at least that was my impression, and doing so in great anger. I do not honestly know uh, if there is a Japanese equivalent to this story. Um, if you know it, listener or viewer, please let me know. Uh, but I am reminded of when Hera sent a fit of madness into Heracles uh, that sent him into a rage, and he killed his wife and children. Uh, when Heracles regained his senses and saw what a horrible thing he had done, he asked the god Apollo to rid him of this pollution of his spirit. Uh, Apollo commanded the hero to do certain tasks as a punishment for his wrongdoings, so that the evil might be cleansed from his spirit. That led to the 12 labors of Heracles. And it is, is a whole podcast unto itself, actually. But those are the two vibes I got from the samurai armor. And something that just screams madness and excruciating pain to me. I don't know about you, Nim. Uh, what, what did you think of my analysis there? Yeah, that is some pretty cool mythological analysis, and I'm digging it. I mean, um, I have to say, I'm also a huge mythology buff, and I love how you brought that conniving bitch Hera into it. So, you know, <laughs> kudos to you for that. Uh, yeah, I said it. 
I said it. Hair is a conniving bitch. So I'll fight her too, man. So, um, but. We're just uh, challenging people to fights <laughs> left and right. We yeah. don't care if you're real or not. We'll fucking fight you. <laughs> it's October, folks. We're in our power and we have zero fucks to give. So there it is. Um, I. I will say uh, there is, roughly speaking, a Japanese equivalent to Heracles in um, Kintaro, the story of Kintaro. Uh, he was born with superhuman strength and raised on Fuji by a witch mother. Uh, deeds of his strength were legendary, and he was a folk hero who was commonly tested because of his strength. Um, there are also uh, the self-imposed tasks of Miyamoto Musashi, although that's not uh, mythology, that's true, uh, it's history, uh, but he chronicled those deeds in his legend of the 10 rings uh that is an incredible interesting read if you ever get the chance to read it really really cool stuff he was a a samurai uh who went around challenging people and he actually killed someone with a i think it's an eight foot or that he turned into a wooden sword and he beat the guy to death so uh, yeah so um let's see but before I move on to another item, um, this scene also reminded me of a different Greek mythology tale, and that's the anguish of Orpheus for some reason. Um, in that tale, Orpheus charms Hades into releasing his wife Eurydice, who died young. Um, I believe she was bit by a viper. But uh, he is allowed to take her out of the underworld because he convinced uh, Persephone and Hades to let him take her. But they had one proviso. He cannot look back to verify that her spirit is following him out of Hades. Predictably, he loses to his temptation and Eurydice is due. He was so despondent afterwards that he did not resist. But a group of women, upset that he no longer sang beautiful music, fell on him and chopped him to pieces before sending his head at Broken Lyre floating down the river. Now, Damn. all those bad Yelp reviews don't look so bad now, do they? So... <laughs> Well, that terrible review heard, but hey, I'm still in one piece. <laughs> exactly. It, it's all fun and games, so your head is floating down the river, folks. So, uh, yeah. I'm going to take those reviews in a whole different light now. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see. Speaking of rivers in Greek myth, uh, passes across the river Styx is required to cross into the realm of the dead. Uh, Charon, ferryman, is the one who ferries the souls of the dead across the sticks. His payment, one coin, usually placed in the dead person's mouth at time of burial. Now, later versions of this ritual call for the eyes of the dead to be covered by coins to pay the ferryman. Coincidentally, this is where the phrase pay the reaper comes from, so that's kind of cool. Um, we see these kinds of coins being dropped at the fore and left around in order to terrify in Virgil's epic poem, The Aeneid. The dead who could not pay the fee and those who had received no funeral rights had to wander the near shores of the sticks for 100 years before they were allowed to cross the river. So all I got to say is, damn, the ancient IRS was stingy as hell, weren't they? So there it is. <laughs> damn. And I thought the IRS had steep penalties. Hades IRS does not fuck around. <laughs> I, I can tell you they do not. In fact, they are on my ass, chuckles, because of your mistakes, because I declared my new torture device as a business expense. Bastards! So, taking it out of your pay, Chuckles. So, there it is. Uh, 
The coins uh, also prominently feature as the artifact in the Warren's house that summons the ferryman entity. Uh, we see Daniela playing with them when she is snooping through the museum. However, this ferryman is a bit different than Carol. Uh, this ferryman works more like Thanatos, the personification of death who comes to pick up the dead souls and carry them to the underworld when their time given by the fates is over. But even that is a little different. In Annabelle Comes Home, they say over and over that if you don't pay the toll, the ferryman takes your soul. The ferryman is rumored to take souls to the afterlife for a price, but instead collects and tortures them. So that is about collecting the coins and souls and has nothing to do with fates or taking souls to the underworld. This sounds more like a demon to me than it does a mythological character. So they change it up a bit. What do you think about that, Mike? Yeah, it definitely seems like they do. They like they wanted to do a Thanatos character, uh, but went with the more familiar ferryman uh, legend or, or myth. Uh, you know, the the ferryman in the movie seemed to have it in for Mary Ellen, and and in a deleted scene, and and in the behind the scenes doc, an explanation for that is given. Mary Ellen tells Daniela that uh, when she was a child, she had an extremely bad asthma attack that nearly killed her and put her in the hospital. And ever since that near-death experience, Mary Ellen is terrified of death, and that is the very reason the ferryman is focused on her. So this ferryman is not just drawn by death, but by fear of death. Like, being afraid to die can make the ferryman come after you. Great, great. Thank you, movie. Now you not only have to fear the Reaper, you have to fear the Reaper's motivation. You know, God Damn it! Do we do we need to have some tea and crumpets to show our feelings now? <laughs> we do not. In fact, I have joined the Blue Oyster Cult, and I think you should too. But enough of this feelings bullshit. <laughs> Don't fear the reaper. All right, enough of that. I'll listen to that later. So, off to something. Oh, I can't believe I'm about to say this. Off to something positively revolting. An object in this movie that doesn't have negative repercussions, the mourner's bracelet. Hold on. What the hell's the point of not having negative repercussions? (laughs) I know. You're preaching to the choir, but we got to get through it. Bear with me. All right. right. At the end of the film, Lorraine tells Daniela that she has tapped into the bracelet's power with her psychic abilities, allowing her to communicate with Daniela's deceased father. Hold on a moment. Okay. Then, oh, then after Daniela's father goes postal and blames Daniela for his death, this is going to be hard, in a deluded act of goodwill, Moraine tells a white lie and tells, she, she tells Daniela that her father has no resentment towards her. Uh, Igor, um, we're going to need a cleanup crew over here and, and someone to hold Nem's mustache back as he hurls his... Good God, man, was that Pennywise's oh. shoe? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yes, it was, as a matter of fact. Oh, oh. sorry. Oh, that was difficult to get through. Everybody bear with oh, me. Oh. Oh. Right. Let, let's, let's have none of these none of these pleasantries anymore. I know. <laughs> It's difficult, but this is what we do for you, folks. This is what we do for you, the viewer. So, Whew. on a more positive note, the father spirit 
was probably being abused by one of the demons summoned by that she-bitch Annabelle, and much the same way as the nun possessed the spirit of the old man in Conjuring 2. And that makes it all a little bit better. So I'm feeling a little bit better now, even if it was Annabelle doing it. So that was a tough one for me to get through. Back to you, Mike. I, I'm going to have Chuckles clean this up. Chuckles, don't eat that. Throw it away. All right. Back to you. So, okay. And don't eat Igor. We need him. Yeah. <laughs> The last thing set loose by Annabelle, a.k.a. Malthus, was the Black Shuck, which is called a hellhound by the Warrens, who claimed that it possessed a man in England. I'm honestly not sure what it is, though. Uh, like a lot of the Conjuring Universe monsters, the Black Shuck in the film is an amalgamation. Uh, but whatever a Black Shuck is, tales of them go back at least a thousand years. Descriptions of the Black Shuck vary in both shape and size, from that of a large dog to being the size of a calf or a horse. It is said that its footfalls make no sound, that he has but one fiery cyclopean eye, and that seeing him meant that you would die by the end of the year. But again, there is a little blending going on here, like we saw with the legend of the ferryman. Uh, there is an old French legend of uh, La Bête du uh, Gévaudan. I think that's it. Uh, that was a that was a monstrous werewolf that came uh, with the encroaching nighttime fog. Uh, mostly, he ate a lot of livestock, and I think maybe that was what, why they showed him killing the Warren's hen. The fact that they called the Black Chuck a hellhound seems to tie in the old English folklore of the Black Dog, a supernatural specter or demonic hellhound. Unlike the Black Shuck, the Black Dog has two eyes that are either red or yellow and is more often than not associated with the devil himself and often attacks churchgoers. But like the Black Shuck, his appearance could be an omen of death. Also, on Led Zeppelin Ford, the very first song is Black Dog, and while the lyrics do not talk about the legend, that is where the name of the song came from. Very cool. Gotta love that Zeppelin reference, by the way. Good catch there, Mike. Uh... Thank you. I, I also have to know uh, that the Sherlock Holmes story, The Hound of the Baskervilles, features that same mythological creature as the basis for the story. However, in that story, the hound is a beacon of death in much the same way the banshee is in Irish folklore. So uh, in this case, though, this particular hound is said to have a particular interest in the Baskerville family and their estate among the Dartmoor Moors. Uh, what's really interesting is that that legend of the black dog exists all around the world in one form or another i mean make of that what you will <laughs> so uh that said hold on i gotta put my black dog to bed who's a good evil lord's pet you are yes you are so all right back to you <laughs> give him a finger for me would you there you go here's a penny so my shoe baby so <laughs> <laughs> Some believe that the black dog will one day give birth to the Antichrist and name him Damien. I'm just saying. <laughs> Seriously, though, when Judy is in bed and Malthus starts attacking her, first by yanking on her feet, next with him in Annabelle Mullen's form, attacked from under her blanket with Anna, with the Annabelle doll in there too. When Judy tries to get away, she knocks over her novelty light that rotates in colors in front of the light bulb. In the shadows on the wall, we see Malthus cycle through his forms from the Annabelle doll to Annabelle Mullins to Annabelle Higgins and finally to Malthus himself. I wonder if there was not some significance to the order there. From the doll to Annabelle Mullins, the little girl to Janice, a.k.a. Annabelle Higgins, to when he walks the earth in his true 
true form like we see him at the end uh, on Annabelle Comes Home. Uh, what do you think about that? A am I reading too much into that, Nim? Hmm. You know, now you're going to make me think. So uh, mind the smoke around here, okay? Uh, <laughs> here is one possible reading of that scene, though. Um, that order is taken on pure pace value, ordered from purest to vilest. I mean, the doll, minus any connection to anything, is merely an object devoid of any inherent evil. Annabelle Moltens is a human and fallible, and she died unshriven, which means she died in sin. And according to Catholic dogma, she must atone for her unforgiven sins in purgatory before she can ascend to heaven, if that's where she's ultimately slated to go. Um, Annabelle Higgins has lost her soul completely uh, and may or may not be damned in the process. We don't know. And finally, there is the progenitor of this evil, Malthus himself, and he's just pure evil. Um, all of this evil is said to reside in this innocent doll, but the light strips away the pretenses, showing the truth. The unassuming conduit, which is the doll, is followed by an untimely death of B. And that in turn leads to a loss of faith. And this allows for possession. And all of this is facilitated by the demon behind it all, who's the last reveal of Maltus. So it is the steps of demonic warfare, perhaps, from infestation to possession. And whew, going to stop there because the old brain matter was overheating there. So I'm going to take a step back. But what do you think about all that? Uh, I I kind of like that. I kind of like that. And in fact, I, I'm not... I'm not positive that that really uh, that I, I don't see why those two theories couldn't coincide. You know what I mean? Because we started off like you're saying with a purely innocent doll, and it turned into this evil thing throughout throughout the stages there. So I mean, I I, I could totally see that. I can totally see what you're talking about there. You and know, it's it it very an artsy take there, but I, I kind of like it if that's what we're going with. So yeah, yeah, I like it too. Uh, Malthus stops Judy from putting Annabelle in the case, and when he grabs her by the throat, he appears to be sucking out her soul. Uh, but we already know from established rules in the franchise that a soul cannot be taken, it can only be given. So taking her soul can't be what he's doing. There are those that would separate spirit and soul. I personally wouldn't, but there are those that would. And if that is going on, then perhaps he is taking her spirit. Um, if that is so, then perhaps that is what he did to Annabelle Mullins. It is either those things or they are straight up violating their own rules here. I don't know. Please tell me you can make some sense of this, Nim. Okay, okay. Let's... Let me think about that one. I think if we go with this, he is feeding on her spirit, but... But we need to establish some definitions. So okay. I'm going to try and do that. So a soul, for purposes of what we're talking about here, is the incorporeal spiritual form of a person for which heaven and hell war. Free will, spiritual warfare, et cetera, et cetera, are all about the war for souls. I think that the franchise is holding on to their established rules such that your immortal soul cannot be snatched from you. And that possession, uh, that that part where you give away your soul you have to make that through action so they can't take your soul from you however since we were doing greek mythology before uh let's go back to what the greeks define the soul as and the greeks define the soul as the psyche and it was connected to the person kind of like what we're talking about here however they had a second form of energy associated with humans their thumos or life force and i think that's what we're seeing here in this scene we're seeing the demon feasting on the life force of the afflicted. 
Here we're getting into the metaphysical, so excuse us if you don't believe everybody out there. However, God guarantees the salvation of your soul if you keep faith. All bets are off when it comes to your physical well-being, which is basically what thumos is. I mean, and I'm going to go back to Catholicism here. Catholics believe we can pray for intervention, but when push comes to shove, your soul wins out over this crude stuff that we're made of here. So it sucks for the present, but dims the break. So I think what we're seeing here is that your soul, the only person to give that away is you. You know, and if you don't give away your soul afterwards, eternally, you're okay. But as far as all this stuff going on, good luck. So, <laughs> yeah. wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So Malthus was killing her by removing her shining, you could say, as Judy Warren has her mother's powers, and therefore her life force, like the true knot and rose the hat, feast on the steam of those with the shining. I think I can get behind that. Of course you can. Of course you can, you hungry little <laughs> macabre machine. Take your seat for the evil peace just because. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Thank you, sir. It takes a good friend to give an evil trivia pie piece just because. <laughs> I am honored. <laughs> You're most welcome. Gobble that thing down. Gobble that thumos down. So. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Souls for me. <laughs> so there are several times that Ed and Lorraine Warren claim that demons do not possess dolls. And I assume things in general, they possess people. Also, we are told that ghosts haunt places and not things. But I think we have shown that demons do, in fact, attach themselves to things and not just with the Annabelle doll. Let's not forget the samurai armor or Rory's music box. Ghosts clearly attach themselves to things and places, and it would seem that demons can attach themselves to those ghosts like Malthus did with Annabelle Mullins and then with... And then the Annabelle doll through Janice, a.k.a. Annabelle Higgins. All of that to say, I think we're being told uh, that the Warrens did not have it all figured out, as it would seem on the surface. I think we can learn from this that there were things beyond the Warrens' purview. Either that or none of the stuff we've been talking about with Malthus makes any sense at all. How about that? You know, I have to say, as long as they don't attach themselves to me, I'm good with it. So, you know... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it makes a lot of sense, and you would have to assume that the Warrens, lacking our dark powers, of course, uh, don't have it all figured out. So, beauty humans think they can figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah, get out of here. And, uh, but, um, hmm, you know, I just have a thought. I'm attached to killing dolls, and dolls are attached to ghosts in this movie. And those ghosts are attached to demons. And those demons left behind corpses. So Dark Lord them plus dolls plus ghosts plus demons plus corpses means, do the math, it's time to count the corpses. On to you, my friend. Fuck yeah, that's right, Dark Lord. Let's count the corpses. Uh, there are actually only a couple of kills in the movie, uh, but there are several that happened before the movie that we only get to hear about or see in one of the Warrens' books. Corpse number one is Daniela's dad, who died in a car accident off-screen while Daniela was driving. Corpses number two through four, if not more, involve the samurai armor. We can hear by the voices that the samurai killed at least two people with a katana, and as he is an oni, or a version of one, he himself must have died, uh, but is perhaps attached to that armor now i'm not sure but i count four corpses there do you have any thoughts on the kills or whether the oni is somehow attached to the armor net boo. Boo. i say boo. 
<laughs> no, not on the only though. Um, I, I think the man may have been cursed. He tied to the armor for his defense against his gods. He may even become the Oni, or he did at one point. Ooh. That makes me happy that he became an Oni, which is um, yeah, which is why I'm booing. I want blood. <laughs> I want gore. I want kills. I don't mind the off-screen kills here or there, but I want the aftermath. I want the deets. Damn, watch carnage. <laughs> Sad now, I'm upset. So, um, so here are some more off-screen kills. <laughs> uh, corpses five through eight are an unnamed woman killed by the ferryman off-screen, and two unnamed men killed by the ferryman off-screen. All of these characters got off light and were seen in the hallway with coins over their eyes by Mary Ellen as she was looking for Annabelle. I'm surprised that wasn't off screen. The young woman seen by Daniela in the, in the picture pulled from the Fairman files are female identical twins in their early teens. We also see a goat rope ripped out by the black shuck in the file, not on screen. And by the way, that goat was a friend of mine in high school. And I know the particulars of that murder, but I'm gonna keep those details for a later broadcast. Like you know, it was very pleasurable. So, <laughs> you know, I remember that goat. He's where I get the phrase "fuck me in the goat ass" from, and why my wife left me. <laughs> Lesson learned: don't say "fuck me in the goat ass" in bed. Moving on. <laughs> the last, <laughs> the oh, last nine, <laughs> the last nine. <laughs> <laughs> the last nine deaths before the movie are, are the bride herself that haunts the wedding dress, but we don't know how she died. Then the seven unnamed men that the bride killed off screen uh, that we saw in, in the file. Corpse number 16 is the priest or ghost that haunts Judy Warren named Father Michael Morrissey. We have no idea why he haunts her or how he died. He's really just there in the beginning of the film and then we don't see him again. Uh, so how about you count off corpses 16 and 17 that actually happened during the film, then? Well, they happened during the film, but... Do we have more off-screen kills, folks? Yes, we do! More off-screen <laughs> kills. So, there's an unnamed woman who is killed off-screen for our not-so-sweet 16th kill. And then finally, Colonel Sanders enlisted the aid of the Black Shuck to bump off a chicken off-screen. And then have the decency to serve up some original recipe murder. So, I need to eat, and we need a sponsor. KFC? I have to say, it's hard to eat chicken with a hockey mask. And like a Mandalorian, I'm not allowed to take off my mask. Slasher rules. It was in the contract. I could probably manage a soda or some chicken fries, though. So hit us up, KFC. I have to say that I enjoyed Annabelle Comes Home a lot. In fact, I would rank the trilogy like this. Annabelle Creation, then Comes Home, and then the 2014 Annabelle film. Uh, like Annabelle Creation Comes Home has a couple of scares that I still that still get me even after a few viewings. I, I thought that Juan and Doberman uh, came up with a great story for this one. I mean, we had all of this buildup about Annabelle and the occult museum in the Warren's house, and there was no better tale to tell than what would happen if Annabelle got loose in that room. I mean, that is exactly where I would have gone with the story as well, and it's the combination of terrors in the occult museum and Malthus 
playlist that really turned things up a notch for part three. Uh, the special effects were great, and I really liked the actresses and actors they picked uh, for their roles. Um, I think I will score Annabelle Comes Home at uh, 3.75 out of 5 skulls and 0.75 out of 5 skulls for the kills. I mean, some of the bodies and picks were cool, but no real memorable deaths unless you count the family of that samurai ghost uh, in the armor. Um, how, how are you seeing this, Nim? Ooh, yeah, uh, you know, sorry, my main man, but I'm going to have to differ with you on this one. I mean, I'll be honest, I really didn't like the concept of this movie, and I wish they had done something different, though I'm not sure what. Um, it seemed like a departure from the earlier films for me, and I would rate this movie below the other two. I almost wish that they had jumped forward in time quite a bit and had a grown-up Judy not believing in the work her parents did, seeking to get rid of all of this junk in the house, and then reaping the whirlwind as movers and more succumb to the unleashed evil before it is contained again, and then Judy becomes a believer and then becomes a paranormal researcher at home right. I kind of wish they had done something like that, but that's that, just that me, That could have been cool. Yeah, I mean, that's, and it's just me. I mean, I, I of course, respect your opinion, and and, and it was a, a beautiful movie to look at, so I got to give them credit for that. It just... It just didn't hit a right chord with me, and that happens sometimes. Um, I would say that I'd rank the animal movies in their chronological order, actually, for how much I like them. So uh, with Annabelle Creation first, then Annabelle, and then Annabelle Comes Home. So I will give this movie three out of five skulls, though, which is not a bad rating. Uh, and it, But... I have to say for the kills, and you heard what I was saying before, folks, boo, it's a big old 0.25, one quarter of one skull for kills. I mean, we'll put that quarter under Annabelle's tongue because the Dark Lord beat the hell out of that bitch last episode. Hail to the king, baby. Back to you. <laughs> Hail to the king. I love it. I love it. Uh, so we, we are pretty far off on our scores for Annabelle Comes Home, but hopefully we've given our listeners and viewers uh, something to think about at least. Well, that about wraps up our coverage of the Annabelle trilogy. Uh, but this is not the end of our Conjuring Universe coverage. We're covering the Conjuring trilogy and the Nun, Nun in our second season. We're also going to be diving into the Friday the 13th franchise as well. All of that and more is coming your way in December uh, 2023 when Season 2 starts. As for our season finale in November, we are going to cover what I consider to be a true 80s horror classic, 1988's Pumpkinhead. So so lots of good stuff is coming in the future. Thank you for hanging out with us on our one-year anniversary as a podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe if you like this video uh, so that you won't miss our next installment of Countless Corpses podcast. But for now, I would like to leave you with the words of Dexter Cozen. Shadows of a thousand years rise again unseen. Voices whisper in the trees. Tonight is Halloween. <laughs>